I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to go through the whole chapter this morning. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we've made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need... I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the region of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say, not as the Lord but would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we're too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abram? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, 
there's a daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. You know, I'm, I'm proud of this country. It has its problems, all countries do. But I think it's a great country. I'm proud to be a resident of the United States of America. There's no other place I'd rather live. I'm proud of my kids. You know, in spite of my feeble attempts to be a father, they, they've grown up to be pretty decent adults. I'm proud of them. I'm proud of this church. I'm proud to be part of a congregation that is loving and accepting, has taken so good care of me and my wife for the last 17 years. I'm proud of the fact that we have an emphasis on God's word and, and on service to the community. Some pride is good. And some pride, particularly self-centered pride, is, is not so good. You know, the, the problem we run into, we, we all know that, we, we get that. The problem we run into is how do we tell the difference? How do we tell the difference between the pride that hurts and the pride that edifies, the pride that nourishes? How, would, how do we tell the difference between the good pride and the bad pride? Well, you know, Paul's on a little bit of a roll here. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we heard about how God's love is all we need, how the only affirmation that, that really has any value to us is that of God himself. But I think we have to understand, and, and, and this is what's happening in Corinth right now, we have to understand that we all have some need for affirmation. We all have some need for recognition. And, and the reason we need that, the reason, the, the reason we feel like we have to have it, is because it, it feeds our sense of purpose. It feeds our sense of pride. Not, maybe not in a bad way, but, but that's why we need it. And, 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 and that, as I say, that's not bad unless, unless it gets out of hand unless it becomes unbalanced. So this week, Paul is going to show us the difference between good pride and bad pride. And he's been laying pretty heavily into his accusers at Corinth, and if they think that's true, boy, they, they, they've got a lot more coming here. And the more we read, the more we hear about what these guys are doing and the damage they're doing to the church and the hurt they're bringing to the people. We, we get more details through how Paul responds to their accusations. And it's all happening because of their bad type of pride. So as we, as we go through this passage this morning, we need to ask ourselves, what am I proud of? What are you proud of? And is, is, that, is that a good pride? Or is it a bad pride? And, and you know, even, even, even as you ask the question, that comes up. Is it a good pride? Is it a bad pride? We're talking that, that there are two different types. Which one am I expressing right now? So, you know, so one question leads to another. And that leads to another is how do I tell? How do I know the difference? Paul's going to help us with that today. The sermon this week is called Paul's Suffering. Um, odd title for a sermon for pride, isn't it? Uh, 
this is part 16 of our series, I Am Content. And we've already learned that Paul's eager to confront his accusers in person. He wants to sit with them face to face. He kind of keeps on telling the Corinthian church, don't worry, uh, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll take care of them when I get there. Uh, so he wants to, but, but he also wants to warn the church. He's throwing up these flares. He's saying, let's be cautious here because these people are dangerous and they're damaging the church. And uh, Paul's pretty well convinced that they don't realize that they're damaging the church. We'll get to that in a little bit. So Paul's going to do this by making two arguments. The first argument will be the argument uh, concerning his authority as an apostle. He's already established his credentials. He's kind of laid it all out in front of him. But now he's going to start wielding that authority and, and explaining where it comes from and why they should listen to Paul instead of these guys here. That happens in verses 1 through 15. And the second argument arises out of his office, uh, the proof of his office as an apostle. So he'll be wielding the authority, and he'll back up the authority with proving that he is an apostle, and all of this will be in response to these accusations that are being levied at him. So let's take a look at our first argument in verses 1 through 15 concerning Paul's authority as an apostle. As, as, as Paul tries to bring some perspective to what's happening in Corinth and, and these infiltrators, these people who have kind of snuck into the church, maybe they rose up from within the church. We would do well to pay close attention to the phrasing that Paul uses in verse 2, because even that is a response to these people. He wants the Corinthians to bear with him in a little foolishness. Now, when we hear that, we, we, we get an idea of what foolishness is in our head, and in the, the classic uh, arena of Greek oratory, uh, they would agree with us that it, it kind of represents immature, senseless uh, behavior, uh, something kids would do, something that, that uh, uh, just, it is just silliness, okay? But Paul's talking in the sense of Greek, uh, a sense of Judaic tradition. Uh, he really draws back, in the word he uses for foolishness, he draws back to the Old Testament. The, the Greek version of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. And the word he uses here indicates this type of foolishness is an unawareness of the character and nature of God. It's the foolishness that a lost person would indulge in. It's almost blasphemous. So he's describing the foolishness that describes those that are lost and lack wisdom about God and about the scriptures. And what Paul's going to try and do is he's going to try and emulate the thinking of these interlopers. He's going to uh, caric caricaturize it, okay? Uh, he's going to make it a, a little cartoon representation of that. So he, want, he, wants to, he wants them to look carefully at these people who are causing so much trouble for the church. And he says that he's doing this in verse 2 because he has a divine jealousy for the Corinthian church. And, and he goes a step further. He said, you know, I'm, I'm divinely jealous. Now, he's not saying, I'm, I'm jealous that you're following these other guys. He has a godly concern for them. He has a godly concern for the direction that they're taking. And he kind of backs it up by saying that he has betrothed them to Jesus. As their spiritual father, he has turned them over to Jesus Christ. Now, this is kind of important because Paul's not laying claim to that, to that congregation. He's not saying they're my congregation. 
He's saying, the reason God put me here is to lead them, to marry them, to lead them into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. And he sets the tone for all of the critique that he's going to levy at his accusers. And the tone is, is uh, touched by Paul's love for the Corinthian church. They're his spiritual children. So even though he's the father, he doesn't claim them. Everything that Paul has done with the Corinthian church has been to prepare them for a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul is not in the ministry for his own gain. That's what we need to read here. But he's there to usher those who follow him into a deeper walk with their Lord. Now, you know, we call pastors shepherds. People will call me a shepherd from time to time. And uh, that's probably a good description of what a pastor does, although technically uh, any pastor that pastors a congregation here on earth is an under-shepherd with Jesus Christ as as the chief shepherd. But a wise man told me not too long ago that what pastors really are are sheepdogs. And that's kind of what we are. We, we follow around behind the flock, kind of herding them towards Jesus Christ. I think it's a far better description of what's going on here. And, and that, comes out of, that comes out of, you know, the pastors that, that are true sheepdogs. It comes out of a calling that God has placed on their hearts uh, and has equipped them with a love for the congregation. Paul wants them to see this. That's why he's using terms like betrothed. He's saying, you know, you betrothed a daughter, a precious daughter, somebody that you love, somebody that you value and cherish, and you place her in the hands of somebody that you trust, somebody that you know will take her and grow her and, and, and be a good husband to her. So Paul's expressing his love for the Corinthian church here by saying that they're betrothed. So, and, and that's what any good pastor would do. It should be herd his flock towards Jesus Christ. And so Paul's setting a level of expectation here. He's saying, this is what apostles do. This is what, what shepherds do. This is what pastors do. He wants the church to know that a good shepherd has the welfare of the flock in mind, and his primary goal is to see them follow Christ, not him. Now, why does Paul want to point this out at this point? Why, why is he emphasizing this at this point in his letter? I mean, he's already established his credentials. He's already established his concern for the Corinthian church. He's already expressed his love for him. But now he's kind of bringing everything to focus here. And the reason he's doing that is because Paul knows something about all of us as Christians. He knows that it's easy for us to misunderstand the goal of our salvation. Listen carefully. Paul knows that it's very easy for us to misunderstand the goal of our salvation. We could think that God saved us to get us to heaven. And you know what? Heaven is a wonderful, beautiful thing, and it's a promise we have, but God didn't save us to get us to heaven. We could think that God saved us to make us better people. We could think that God saved us to make us happy. We could think that God saved us for our benefit. Paul knows that people think along these lines, and he also knows that these false teachers are cashing in on this. It's easy to get seduced into thinking 
It's all about me. It's easy to become self-centered. And we need to understand the environment that we live in today is not really too different than the environment the Galatians lived in. As a matter of fact, it might be a little bit worse because everything we have bombarding us tells us that it's about us. Every ad we see tells us that we can be happy if we buy this product or we could be better or we could we can enjoy ourselves more or, or whatever. Uh, every movie we see, we want to be the hero of the movie. We relate to the movies because we see ourselves in the role. Guys go to superhero movies because they think they can be superheroes. I watch Superman. I, I can do that. I'm standing on top of the building. My cape is flowing. This is fantastic. I'm just like Superman. I identify with Superman. Some of you ladies see the same thing happening in your movies. The movies we think are about us. We enjoy them because they, they kind of feed our egos a little bit. Okay? Every book we read. Yeah. And, and some of you younger people going, well, you know what? Uh, not, not my video games. Uh, yes, indeed. I'm the winner in a video game. I'm the victor. I get more weapons. I can just crush the opponents. I've got my name and my initials all over everything. I mean, we live in that culture that says it's all about you. And the church, the church has equipped us to understand that even better. You know, have you ever had, heard somebody go, today we're going to celebrate you? Now, there's nothing wrong with celebrating you. There's nothing wrong with, with somebody clapping if you've done something. The question is, are you celebrating yourself or are you celebrating what Christ has done in you? Who are we really looking at here? One of the best-selling books of the first decade of the 2000s is You Can Have Your Best Life Now. Christian book, people call it. Why is it best-selling? Well, about me having a better life. We live in this environment. The Galatians lived in the same environment. Paul's saying, no, it's about Jesus Christ. Be careful because the gospel is being distorted. The gospel is being perverted. And in such a manner that it appeals to you. It sounds good to you. It's attractive to you. You want to appropriate it. All the angels in heaven danced the day you were born. Well, you know what? Maybe they did. But why were they dancing? They were dancing for the glory of God. They were dancing for the transformation that the Holy Spirit worked in your life. They were dancing because God is exalted in the redemption of his children. They were dancing because all of creation shouts to the glory of God. We think, well, for that one moment, all creation shouted for the glory of me. Paul wants to point them towards this. He wants them to get this because the guys that are influencing him are not doing it. Now, Paul's saying... I get this, but it, for the first time, and, and, and he's going to do it again a little bit later on in a chapter, he's saying, you know what, it's not me. This is a template for all of us. We're all called to do the same thing. As Christians, we are saved, we are regenerated, we are made new, we are given a new life, we're given a place in heaven to point towards Jesus Christ, not ourselves. Paul wants that to sink in. And he's concerned that these troublemakers are preaching a different gospel than the one Paul treats, 
preached. And, and he's concerned that the Corinthian church is being led off track, take his focus off Jesus Christ and place it somewhere else. Paul calls it proclaiming another Jesus Christ, a different Jesus Christ. And, and he kind of emphasizes it with, you know, I know you're buying into this. I know you're going down that path because, because you are putting up with it readily enough. So he begins this, this tongue-in-cheek comparison of himself to the false teachers. Apparently, they have accused him of being unskilled in speaking. And Paul says, well, you know what? Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not that great a teacher. But you know what? I, I don't lack knowledge. I know what's going on. I know about the character and nature of God, but I know what's going on in Corinth as well. He mockingly repeats your accusations. He Remarking about how, you know, he, Paul, you little guy, I can't compare to these super apostles. You know, they're so fantastic. How can I hold a candle to them? I'm just Paul. Just as apparently the false apostles are in it for the money. They're in it for the money. This is why Paul brings up this thing about, about uh, how he has benefited from them. Verse 7 Paul reminds the church that he preached the gospel without pay. Now, we have to be careful with this. Uh, you know, he derived his support from the churches he had been to before. We all know Paul was a tent maker. We all know that early in his career, he was bivocational. But as Paul continued to travel through Galatia, through Turkey, through Macedonia, northern Greece, southern Greece, uh, and spent more and more time in the ministry, he began to derive his income from the churches that he established. What Paul did not do was go into a town that had not heard the gospel and ask those people for money to pay him to preach them the gospel. This is where we get our fundraising policy from. You know, if we're going to minister to the lost, we're going to ask God to finance it within the body of Christ. We're not going to go out to the businesses and knock on doors raising money so we can share the gospel with the people that are giving us the money. That's what Paul's saying. So he didn't charge the Corinthians. But now they're in this situation where apparently these super apostles are making a lot of money off the church. And Paul's reminding them, well, I didn't do that. He's trying to show them what a true apostle looks like. And once he kind of plants that seed, then he begins to level his accusations at the accusers. And, and they're pretty severe. In verse 13, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You see what he just did? He said, you think those guys are apostles? You know, I, I'm the evidence of what an apostle is. Watch what I've done. Watch what I'm doing. Okay? And watch what they're doing. They're actually servants of Satan. And then, uh, once again, he assures them, but it's okay. If you have to, their end will correspond to their deeds. So Paul's first argument is to the authenticity of his apostleship. And to do that, he points to his love, his sacrifice, and his service. Now, this is an important point, because in doing so, he, he also highlights the fact that these false apostles are doing exactly the opposite. They have no love. 
they made no sacrifice. They're really not serving. All they're doing is creating a lot of trouble and a lot of tension. So you can identify somebody's ministry by the fruit that it produces. These people are producing rancid fruit. Meanwhile, Paul's planting churches all over the place that are focused on Jesus Christ. But not only are are they not loving, sacrificing, and serving, they're, they're taking advantage of the church. And this is what the church isn't seeing. This is what Paul's trying to open their eyes to. They're plundering the church. They're not just plundering the church, they're boasting about it. And look what they're boasting. They're boasting about themselves. They're boasting about their capability. They're boasting about their authority. They're boasting about their eloquence and saying, Paul doesn't have any of this. We've got it in spades. That's why why you need to follow us. These evil men are proud of their status. They're proud of their accomplishments. And in everything they do, they point to themselves instead of Jesus Christ. And we say, well, we would never fall for that. doesn't happen these days it's too obvious you ever listen to somebody on the radio or on tv and they spend 15 minutes talking about some object lesson and 20 minutes telling you you should buy their book or their curriculum or donate to their ministry i mean it happens today we need to realize it and as shepherds we're here to equip you to tell the difference like just the same thing that Paul's doing, to tell the difference between the teachers that would take advantage of you and the teachers that are concerned for your welfare. These teachers are calling attention to themselves, not Jesus Christ. That leads us to the second argument where Paul provides the proof of his office. He's saying, look, you know, here's the authority I have as an apostle. You know who I am. You have seen what I've done. You have been touched by the Holy Spirit. And so as I wield this authority, as I, as I make these accusations, understand where they're coming from. Now understand my office, okay? And that's in 16 through 33. I, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I may boast a little. And, and Paul's really saying, well, you know what? They're boasting and you're listening to it. So, you know, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to boast a little bit, too. And, and, you know, when we hear this, we're like, oh, here we go. Now, now the fight begins. And he, he goes in verse 17, what I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as a lawyer, but as a fool. So he said, I'm talking like a lost person here. Uh, and there's, there's a little bit of a hint of stick with me for a moment because I've got something to tell you, okay? Since many boast according to the flesh, Those guys are boasting about themselves. Those guys are boasting about what they do, what they've accomplished, not what Christ did. All their boasting is of the flesh. Paul says, I'm going to boast too. For you gladly bear with fools being wise yourself. This is a cut. This is like, you know, you're listening to these guys. I can't believe that you're listening to these guys. In Galatians, he says in the church at, at, at in Galatia, that I'm astonished that you followed this false gospel. This is kind of the same thing here. I'm surprised that you're listening to these guys. You're so wise that they're leading you off that. And then he says, for you bear it. Listen to this. Here's the real problem Paul is having with these guys in the Corinthian church. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you. 
or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. He said, these people are hurting you. You think they're there for your good and you're following because they talk about you, but it's all about them. You're being damaged, you're being wounded, and you don't even know it. How does, how does that even happen? How does that occur? You know what? Corinthians aren't stupid people. They're not unsophisticated. They've got the entire world at their doorstep. All the goods in the Roman Empire are flowing in and through Corinth both ways. It's a big city. It's prosperous. They're educated. They're debaters in the, in the classic sense of, of the Greek uh, form of debate. They've got it all. How do they get led off stray? Well, they've got the world at their doorstep. And so they've heard the gospel. They've been changed. They're being moved in the right direction. But they're also worldly. And they bought into a gospel that's all about them. They bought into a gospel that puts them at the center of everything, that feeds their pride in a bad way, not in a good way. Paul says in verse 21, to my shame, I must say, we're too weak for that. Royal we. You know, I, I, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I can't do what they're doing. I won't do what they're doing. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Now Paul's getting down to the things that he wants to boast about. And they're counterintuitive to everything that the false apostles are saying. They demonstrate not Paul's strength, but his weakness. And, and he starts off with common ground. Are, are they Hebrews? Well, I'm a Hebrew. You know, if they, if they say being Hebrew is something special, well, you know what? I'm a Hebrew too. Are they Israelites? Yeah, so I, I'm an Israelite. I've got all the heritage, all the history. You know my background. Are they offspring of Abraham? Well, so am I. So he hits these similarities. He goes, you know, I've got the same credentials they do. And they know, they know Paul has even better credentials. They know Paul's background. They know the change that Paul's going through. They've experienced the same transformation. And then Paul takes an abrupt 180. He goes, here are the things I'm going to boast about. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. I know this sounds crazy to you, he says. Why is he better? With far greater labors. <laughs> I've done more work than they've done. Far more, check this out, far more imprisonments. Is that crazy? I'm boasting about being in prison more? You know, everybody knows why Paul was in prison. He's in prison because he refuses to compromise the gospel. He's in prison because he refuses to stop talking about Jesus Christ. Everywhere he goes, he proclaims the gospel according to Jesus Christ, not according to Judaism. He's getting thrown in prison. And he says, so uh, I've got far more. Have any of those guys been put in prison because of what they're teaching? Does their teaching offend anybody like the gospel is supposed to be an offense? 
far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. You know what the lashes were like. You know, this isn't just standing somebody up against the wall and hitting them with a whip. This thing, this thing is a, an instrument of torture. It had, it, they, they would call it a cat of nine tails today. It would have at least nine leather thongs on it, probably two and a half to three feet long. Embedded at the end of the thongs was little bits of glass and bone and rocks, sharp rocks. And the, the guy who was administering the lashes didn't just stand there and hit him in the back. He would draw the, the, the lashes across the back of the victim. And then do it the other way. I want to tell you something. A lot of people did not survive one of those. Paul's been through five of them. His back was so scarred and so torn up that it would take Paul an hour and a half to two hours to get out of bed in the morning. He had to have somebody rubbing oil on his back because all of the skin was so stiff he couldn't stand up straight. Five times he took the lashes. Three times beaten with rods. Three times put in a stockade with his feet stuck out. And they take a three and a half to four foot long rod about two inches thick and beat his feet with it until every bone in his feet is broken. Then they chain him to the wall and make him stand on him. Once I was stoned. He was stoned so bad they thought, stood around him and thought he was dead. Paul got up and started walking away. And the people standing around said, where are you going, Paul? He said, I'm going to preach the gospel. You know, even the stones can't stop me. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at the sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, danger everywhere Paul went. This is what he's bragging about. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless, sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul says, here's, here's what an apostle does. Here's what it looks like to be an apostle. Those guys are bragging about what they do. Here's what I'm bragging about. I'm bragging about what the Lord did. I went through all this stuff, and I'm still here. It's a miracle that I'm here. I'd rather be there in heaven, to be honest with you, but God put me here. So this is what an apostle looks like. He will endure these things because he loves Christ and loves the church. And the inference is, do those guys love you this much? Do they love you so much that they would go through all this stuff and still write a letter encouraging you to come close to Christ? And he says... Apart from the other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. The Greek word means his care, concern, and love for the church. Some people will translate this as a burden. I don't think Paul thought it was a burden. I thought he thought it was a privilege and an honor. And he says, who's weak when I'm not weak? He said, look, if any of you are weak, it weakens me. You're my children. And those of you who are parents understand exactly what he's saying. Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? Who, who stumbles and, and I don't feel the pain in my knees when they, hit, when they scrape their knees? 
Paul wants them to prosper and grow, but he wants them to prosper and grow in their knowledge of the Lord, in their knowledge of God's Word, in their knowledge of the character and nature of God. And then he lowers the boom. In verse 30, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Wow. <laughs> Boasting about your weakness. Why, why, why does Paul do that? You know, in the next chapter, he's going to say, when I am weak, then I am strong. What, what, what's Paul doing? He's trying to rescue the church. He's trying to, to deliver them from the hands of these evil teachers. And he says he's weak. Well, if Paul knows, and if we look at the rest of his writings, we find out that when Paul's weak, when he's unable to do anything, when everything has gone beyond anything he could possibly imagine doing to rescue the situation, then when the situation is redeemed, God gets the glory. Paul wants to make sure God gets the glory, that nobody thinks that this has happened because Paul's such a great theologian, that nobody thinks that that the church comes back to Christ because of Paul's powerful personality or because of his tremendous wisdom or his, his oratorical capabilities. Paul wants to make sure that everything he does brings glory to God. And he's trying to teach the Corinthians this. That it happens in the power of God and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, not in the power of Paul. How weak is Paul? You know, if you don't understand what Paul's doing, you don't get these last couple verses here. But he wants to give them a demonstration of how weak he is. He says, the God and Father, the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. At Damascus, you know, the king is after him. He's closed off the city. Paul can't get out. He said, you know what they had to do? They had to lower me in a basket outside the window. I had to trust those people to put me down so I didn't bang my head. And what Paul does is he absolutely humbles himself. He said, I had to run and hide. But God preserved me through that as well. Paul refuses to boast of himself. He always points towards Christ. And see, there's the proof of his office as an apostle. It's in the strength of Christ. It's in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the fact that the changes that have occurred in Paul are similar to the changes that have occurred in the hearts of the Corinthian church. The transformation is there because of the power of Christ, because of the work that Christ did on the cross. And he's trying to point him back there saying, don't follow men now. Follow the one who has changed you. Follow the one who is going to sanctify you. Follow the one that is going to take you deeper in a relationship with your father. And none of those changes occurred through the efforts of any man, but through Christ alone. So here's what we... Here's what we've learned from Paul's two arguments. In, in establishing his uh, authority as an apostle, he, he points to his love, his service, and his sacrifice. Uh, so he says, Here, here's what an apostle, lo apostle looks like. You know, they, they love. They love unconditionally. They serve. They, they serve with all their heart and all their mind. They, they sacrifice. They sacrifice everything they have. So Paul 
Paul is sent a template. You know, in Ephesians, he will write, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul's not saying, be like me. He's saying, I'm trying as hard as I can to be like Christ. Follow me. I'm kind of getting this. All these things I've gone through, which prove my apostleship, which prove my office, all these things I've gone through, I could only have survived by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of Christ in me. Follow me. I think I'm on to something. Do you want to emulate these guys over here that are standing on top of the temple with the, with the superhero thing? Or do you, want to, do, do you want to emulate Christ? I'm trying as hard as I can to be like Christ. I'm trying as hard as I can to allow Him to mold me and shape me in His image. And if we do it together, it's going to be easier for all of us. You're being led astray. Don't let it happen. And Paul, Paul has survived all that. And as we're going to hear in the next chapter, he's still thankful. He's happy with it. Paul boasts in humility about his service and his sacrifice, always pointing out his own weakness, always pointing out his own illability. Got to be lowered from the wall in that basket. He's always elevating Christ. So that's what Paul's proud of. What are you proud of today? Is it a good pride or a bad pride? Paul's given us the tools to tell. We're proud of things that point towards Christ. It's a good pride. We're proud of things that point towards us. Well, that's maybe not such a good pride. You know what? We all understand we're not supposed to go... Look at these things I've got. They make me a fantastic person. We get that, don't we? Ever get proud of our kids? You know what my kid did? He was in the newspaper yesterday. I've done it. I've done it. Ever get, ever get proud of... You ever get proud of our spirituality? You know, I've memorized three books of the Bible. And we're proud of anything that we've accomplished and not recognizing that it is Christ in us that accomplishes anything of any value. Then it's a bad pride. I pray blessings on you today that God may imbue you with a good pride, one that points back to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have redeemed us. Even as we are in the process of being redeemed, we thank you, Father, that, that you're still working on us. Uh, even as Paul ends his career, he, he talks about not being perfected yet, still needing some work. We thank you, Father, that you are faithful and true to work in our hearts and draw us closer to you and refine us, Father. We pray that we receive that as a gift, as a gesture of your love, as a gesture of what is good for us. And we pray, Father, as we walk through life, that your spirit would be our constant companion, our comforter, but our convictor as well, Father, making us aware of those times when pride gets a hold of us, when self-centeredness would direct us just a few steps off the path of sanctification, Father, and that would pull us back as gently as Paul has pulled the church back.
thank you for your patience. We thank you for the redemption that you give us in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we ever give him glory. In Jesus' name, amen.